Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now Welcome back to Murder Under the Midnight Sun. Now, I ended up running out of time this month, but I wanted to get you guys an episode. So tonight I'm bringing you another Patreon preview episode, which are episodes that basically give an example of the kind of cases that I cover on Patreon episodes. So I hope you enjoy it. And the next part of World War II in Alaska will be out within the next week. So as usual, this episode is brought to you by my kind and lovely Patreons. Welcome to my newest Patreon supporter, Kate. If you guys would like to support the show, you can just click the link in the show notes to check out my page and perks. Thank you guys so much. And without further ado, I'm just going to jump into the case because it's kind of a long one. So on tonight's episode, we will be diving into a historical mystery out of Texas. It's a story of a brutal serial killer who was never caught. And even though he was active just a few years before Jack the Ripper, unlike the latter, the stories of this killer's crimes have nearly been forgotten. I must give major props to my source material, a book called Midnight Assassin by Skip Hollinsworth. Those of you that read the long-form crime articles in Texas Monthly may recognize his name as a longtime contributor to that magazine. Skip's book is the result of years and years of arduous research, using dozens of newspapers from all over the world to piece together the story of this mysterious killer. His meticulously researched and extremely well-written book is easily in my top three of best true crime books I've ever read. And that is definitely saying a lot. I'm actually going to be starting a monthly giveaway to my patrons. And the first giveaway at the end of June is going to be a copy of this book. And one lucky patron is going to get a copy of it. And I hope you love it as much as I did. One interesting facet of this killer's crimes was that while most serial killers tend to stick to one target demographic, the Austin serial killer He seemed to kill pretty much indiscriminately. While at first he targeted mostly servants, many whom were black, he also killed men and eventually would start killing white women of a higher station. There have really been just a few serial killers that murdered without prejudice. When the Austin murders began, just as the new year of 1885 was on the horizon, Texas was a quickly evolving place 
It had only been a state for about 40 years. The biggest cities in Texas all remained under 50,000 people until just around 1900. The state was at the tail end of the Wild West era, and many cities like Austin were trying to become more cosmopolitan. Austin had only been founded 50 years prior, and it had actually changed its name from Waterloo to Austin and became the capital of the Republic of Texas and would stay the state capital till this very day. The city was established in almost the exact center of the big state, making it a prime location for a capital. It's also located in an area full of natural beauty, including rolling green hills, a multitude of lakes, and the Colorado River, which runs right through town. I've been there several times. It is a beautiful place. Austin has always been a city of dreamers, a city that's constantly striving to be more. And once the University of Texas opened there in the early 1880s, the population began to grow even faster. And to this day, it remains one of the fastest growing cities in the United States. But when our story begins, it was still a small town with big aspirations. The ambitious new state capital was in the process of being built. It would end up being the largest state capital building, and it's actually taller than the U.S. Capitol building. Austin wanted to be a destination city, and at not quite 20,000 people, it was beginning to gain a reputation as a nice place to visit for shopping and other big city activities. So when the series of murders began, there became real fear among residents that this madman and his crimes could derail everything they had been working towards. But on the morning of New Year's Eve, 1884, the first murder would occur. It became known that something bizarre had happened when a man received a knock on his door in the early morning hours. At the door was a young black man named Walter Spencer. He was injured and covered in blood, and he rushed into the house saying that someone had attacked him and taken his girlfriend, Molly Smith. Molly worked as a servant for the household, but the man who had answered the door was actually just a visiting relative of the people that employed her, and he really didn't care about her disappearance. Certainly not enough to go out in the unnaturally cold weather and look for her. He also didn't want this black man bleeding all over his relative's house, so he refused to help him look for Molly or let him in to help him with his wounds and said, get out of here, essentially. It was obviously a very racist time, especially in the American South, especially since, you know, slavery had only been abolished like 20 years prior. So not that it's completely gone, but it was much more prevalent back then. Early the next morning, Molly's body was discovered laying near the house. She had been chopped to pieces by an axe. It was a vicious, brutal scene, unlike anything anyone in town could remember seeing. The city was understandably shocked. They experienced very few murders, and they were usually of the whiskey-amplified dispute type that generally involved a gun and usually was committed by somebody that knew the victim. However, while this crime did resonate throughout the city, few people of any standing were particularly worried. They weren't really sad either. They saw it as being a black-on-black crime, most likely a lover's quarrel. It was nothing for them to worry about, and the police were stumped. They were used to easily solve murders, 
you know, where the perpetrator's still standing there with the gun and too drunk to run away. And this was definitely beyond their limited crime-solving capabilities. There was blood absolutely everywhere at the scene, and the killer had even left behind the axe used in the crime. But since it was the 1880s, the police had almost no grasp of forensic techniques, and the most they knew how to do in Texas at the time was how to take shoe prints. Actually, around that time period, fingerprinting was just becoming known as a way to identify people, but, you know, America was a little behind the times, and the police there had not learned that technique at all yet. So, the police were desperate to find a suspect and get this case closed. They didn't want panic to sweep through the city. Newspaper reporters from all over were already flooding into town to report on the story. And the police weren't anxious to have their town become famous for this brutal crime. There was really only one obvious suspect, her boyfriend Walter. But he had many character witnesses to support his claim of innocence. He was known for being a very gentle person, especially in relation to Molly. Not only that, but the man who had seen Walter desperately looking for Molly the night before believed that he was not the killer. He believed that Walter's fear and panic had been genuine. No one was that good of an actor. And besides that, Walter himself had been badly injured during the attack, having received several hits to the head. And no one really thought that he would go to that extreme to cover up the crime. The only other possible suspect was her ex-boyfriend, William Brooks. And even though he had a very solid alibi, he was arrested and held in jail. There were rumors circulating that there was bad blood between him and the couple. That was pretty much good enough for the police at the moment. The way the law went at that time, they were actually able to arrest him for suspicion of the crime, primarily so they could keep him in jail while they investigated the murder. So being arrested for suspicion of murder was a totally different thing than being actually arrested for murder. I'm really glad we don't have that law anymore. And as the year changed over to 1885, the night after the crime, the murder was certainly in the minds of locals and law enforcement, but the city did not let it stop them from celebrating. No one could have predicted that this was just the first of many murders to come. And while Molly's boyfriend, friends, and family mourned her, life started to go on. Day by day, the crime faded more and more from the minds of the rest of Austin's residents. And at the end of January, after a month of being held in jail, William Brooks was finally released, after a grand jury decided they didn't have enough reason to take it to trial. He also had several witnesses that would testify to him being miles away from the crime scene until dawn on the day of the murder, so it just didn't really seem possible that he had done it. As the first few months of the new year began to pass, things seemed to get back to normal in the city until a rash of incidents occurred in March. Over the course of a few weeks, several different servant girls throughout the city reported a late-night intruder who either tried to break into their quarters unsuccessfully, or in the worst incident, was able to get in and hit a young woman on the head several times while she slept. Thankfully, she survived, but, like the others, was unable to give any description of her attacker. Others reported that they had witnessed a person near their house, 
and when they returned to their quarters, they saw that an intruder had come in and throw their belongings all over the place. A few weeks after that, two servant girls were in their quarters late at night when someone began shooting into their room from outside. One of them was actually shot, but she survived. The changing MO of the perpetrator was bizarre and terrifying. No one knew what was going to happen next. And while the women that were attacked were both white and black, they were all servant girls. So again, the elite members of society weren't really that worried. In one of the incidents, a woman had woken up to see a man standing by her bed. He threatened her and hit her in the head before running off. So far, the women who had glimpsed their attacker had provided either no description or a very wide variety, none of which were similar to each other. However, this last woman was the only one that said her attacker was actually white. But no one believed this could be possible, of course. Austin citizens just continued to assume that the perpetrator must be one or several black men of bad character. It goes without saying that the city was very racist at the time, and everybody was all too willing to blame this on a black man. They thought that black men had inherently savage natures, and without the structure of slavery to keep away their baser tendencies, obviously one of them was, quote, retrograding. Some who wrote into the local paper recommended just shooting any black person you might happen to see near your property at night, whether or not they might actually be there to do harm. Good thing we don't do that anymore, huh? On any given night, only about four of the 12 policemen in the city were actually out on patrol. So rather than have them all on patrol, the city decided to hire some non-policemen to basically go out on patrol to look for the murderer. And while these community patrols were active, no incidents occurred. So eventually the extra police patrols were discontinued at the end of April. And just a few days later, there were two more reports in the same night of a man breaking into servants' quarters and attacking the women. Nothing terribly violent happened in these incidents, though in one case the man held a razor to the woman's throat and threatened her, but was thankfully scared off by friends of the woman approaching the house. A few days later, there were more incidents, which mostly involved minor things like things being thrown at servants' quarters, and law enforcement rounded up and arrested five black men, including one who had lived in the local lunatic asylum for many years. Other than that, there wasn't much reason for any of the arrests. So the men were held for a few days and interrogated, which in that time and place, you don't even want to know what that involved. It was somehow worse than it is now. After all of these men were quote-unquote, questioned, and none of them confessed to anything, they were finally released. Austin law enforcement seemed to be slowly working their way through the entire African-American male population of the city, hoping to eventually stumble upon the killer. After the men were released, things settled down for several more days, before the next extremely violent incident occurred. There was a young servant girl named Eliza Shelley, who lived in a small house just behind her employers with her three small children. One morning, her employers could hear her children loudly yelling and crying. When they went to investigate, they found her on the floor of the house, and she had obviously been very violently attacked. 
She had wounds from an axe, a knife, and something shaped like a screwdriver. She was very dead. One of her young sons said that he had been woken up the night before by a man whose face was covered in a makeshift mask. The man demanded to know where the money was and then made the boy hide his head under a pillow. Despite not having seen the man's face, the boy felt certain that the man was white. The boy also said that he had not heard any of the struggle that had taken his mother's life. Eliza's employers were very distraught as she had been like a member of their family. She was married, though her husband was in prison on a short stint, and no one knew of her being romantically involved with anyone else. No one could really think of anyone that might have a motive to kill her either. The only evidence left at the crime scene was footprints made outside of the cabin by bare feet. Local white residents continued to not care. They assumed the crimes were the work of a gang of black hoodlums. A local up-and-coming writer named William Sidney Porter came up with the nickname the Servant Girl Annihilators for this hypothetical gang of murderers, even though they would go on to kill a wide variety of people beyond servant girls. This writer, Porter, would actually go on to be a famed short story writer who wrote under the pseudonym O. Henry. Rumors and theories in the black neighborhoods were of a more paranormal perpetrator. They thought maybe some evil entity was performing these dark deeds. Like many serial killers, the cooling down period for this killer was getting shorter as the slaughter continued. Just a few weeks after Eliza's murder, a man heard a scream in his backyard late one night and went outside to see his cook, Irene Cross, laying on the ground covered in blood. Her arm had been nearly cut off, and she had a huge cut on her head. She actually survived for a couple of days before passing away from her wounds. And she was conscious during this time, but unable to speak. Her nephew, who had seen the attacker come into their little house, described him as a chunky black man. Within a few weeks, there were more incidents involving a gun being fired into servants' quarters and more rocks being thrown into other houses, but no one was seriously injured in any of these incidents. Police wondered if maybe these were copycat crimes because it seems strange that someone would go from cutting someone's arm off to just throwing a rock at their house. After each attack, local white residents continued their rallying cry that it must be a group of angry black men, and rumors spiraled further from reality into murderous cults and outlaws that lived in a cave together. This was more believable to them than the idea that it could just be a really shitty white guy. <laughs> they continued to arrest more black men, pretty much at random probably hoping that the threat of beatings would eventually pay off and they would get some info. However, the summer continued on and it was mostly quiet until the very end of August. And this next attack would raise the brutality to a whole new level. It also revealed just how brazen the killer was becoming. Like many other servant women, Rebecca Remy and her 11-year-old daughter had taken to sleeping in the kitchen of her employer. They felt safer being in the house with the others, though judging from this crime, they probably shouldn't have. 
During the night, Rebecca woke up and saw that there was a dark figure lurking in the kitchen. The man hit her with a heavy club and knocked her unconscious. When she came to, her young daughter was missing. Her employer, whose name was actually Valentine Weed, went searching for young Mary and found her on the brink of death in a backyard shed. This part's fucked up. She had been stabbed in both ears. Oof. The age of the victim, the viciousness, and the fact that the killer had just walked into the house and took his victim out really made this crime the most shocking one yet. Throughout each subsequent crime, law enforcement had attempted to use scent tracking dogs to follow the killer's scent, but had gotten no leads from that. But after this crime, they were able to follow a scent down the road to where they found a young black man asleep in a barn. He was, of course, arrested. And to continue the trend, he was released the same day due to a complete lack of evidence. The murder of the young girl had really gotten the attention of Austin residents of every race and class. Rebecca had survived the attack, but had to bear the unspeakable tragedy of burying her murdered child. Law enforcement decided to bring in an outside private detective named Hennessy, one of many of that era whom so desperately wanted to be seen as a hard-boiled detective straight out of a pulp novel. Hennessy came to town with a couple of associates, and the three of them got quite a bit of attention, despite making absolutely no progress on the case. The weekend they left town briefly, the killer attacked again. It was the end of September, and over a few days, a man was both seen and heard lurking outside of a few different residences. Two servant women that saw the man insisted that he was white. After those close calls, the killer struck with ferocity. A local newspaper man heard sounds behind his house where four people were staying in the servants' quarters, including his servant girl, Gracie, her boyfriend, Orange, and two other servant women who were employed at nearby houses, undoubtedly staying together due to safety in numbers. The man went out back and discovered Gracie's two friends, both badly injured and seeming to be on the brink of death. Her boyfriend, Orange, was dead from an apparent axe attack. Gracie wasn't there, but they quickly found her in the neighboring yard. She had been beaten beyond anything the detectives had ever seen. The attack was the most horrendous yet, focused mostly on her head and face. Lying near her body was the murder weapon, a brick. The killer's brutal crimes were evolving. He was now using different types of weapons. Based on the crime scene, he would throw down each weapon as he was done with it and grab something else. The scene must have been crawling with forensic evidence that the 19th century policeman had nothing, no way of using. By the next morning, only Gracie and Orange had died from their wounds. During the day, a servant girl reported that she had returned to her quarters after sleeping in the main house. She immediately saw that someone had been in her room and they had gone through her belongings and thrown them all over the place. She thought it may have been a robbery, but ascertained that only one thing was missing, her watch. Which, when she described it, law enforcement realized they had seen it before. 
Gracie had been wearing it when her body was found. That gives me chills. Soon after the double murder that took the lives of Gracie Vance and her boyfriend, Orange Washington, a young black man named Doc Woods was arrested for suspicion of the murder because he had allegedly been rejected by the young lady. Yada, 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 no evidence, he's released. At the end of this long, dreadful weekend, the private detective Hennessy returned to town and jumped back into the investigation. Within a few days, he announced that he had been tipped off by a young boy who had heard a local chicken thief discussing the crimes from the first-person perspective. The boy also claimed to have followed the thief to a couple of the crime scenes just prior to the murders. The chicken thief's name was Oliver Townsend, and he was a well-known criminal and the perfect scapegoat since he was known for being very stealthy and being able to sneak in people's yards and steal their chickens. Furthermore, Hennessy said that he had gained information from Lucinda and Patsy, Gracie's friends, who had survived, and they said that Doc Woods had been seen near the scene of Gracie and Orange's murder. So obviously these two men were working together on these crimes. Hennessy had announced this at a press conference on the steps of the Capitol building, all too ready to revel in the glory of solving the case. Thankfully, the reporters didn't really believe him. So they did their own investigating and quickly and easily found out that Lucinda and Patsy were so injured that neither of them could have had any sort of conversation with Hennessy. They believed it more likely that Hennessy had paid this teenage boy to falsely accuse the two men just so he could solve the case, quote-unquote solve. He had seemed to overlook the indisputable fact that Doc Woods had a very good alibi for the night of the murders, provided by his employer. He refused to back down now, and this time named another man, Alex Mack, as being part of the gang of murderers as well. Mack had previously been questioned and let go, but they went ahead and arrested him again and quote-unquote interrogated him some more. Basically, anyone left with common sense in the town had lost all faith in these shitty detectives, and by October, they were ran out of town. The city then announced a reward of $250 for any tips leading to the arrest of the murderer. This is the equivalent of around $6,700 in today's money, so it wasn't the best reward, but it was a start. Of course, this led to many more tips on random black men that were quote-unquote suspicious. There were many more pointless arrests that went nowhere, and they even had a tale on a local Malaysian immigrant named Maurice for a few days, but nothing came out of any of this. Like in many cities during times in which a serial killer is active, everyone was buying guns, and people were even arming their servants and giving them shooting lessons, because they're now your bodyguard, apparently. Plenty of local servant girls were also just leaving the city, like... Get out of Dodge. Finally, though, after way too many crimes, it seemed like locals were starting to reassess their opinion on who might be perpetrating these crimes. Some were beginning to think that it might be the work of one cold, calculating, evil man. An unknown local reporter even wrote about this in the San Antonio Daily Express and named him the Midnight Assassin. 
That's what I'm using to call him because it is just much catchier than Servant Girl Annihilator, which sounds silly and is also inaccurate. The seeming lack of motive was the main thing people were having issues with for, you know, the late 1880s. There had been plenty of maniacs at the time that had killed multiple people, but oftentimes they were criminally insane, and they had rarely, if ever, dealt with someone that seemed to be completely capable of going crazy, killing these women, but then are able to get out of there and not get caught, and to keep doing it over and over and over again. It was also odd that he had left someone alive at each crime scene. It seemed to police at each crime scene that he would target one of the individuals there and they would receive the most brutal attack, whereas the other people there were just collateral damage and they'd be attacked as well, but not nearly as bad. And in some cases, with children, they had been left alive and completely uninjured. So police started to wonder if the killer was doing this on purpose for some reason. It's very possible he was doing this as a way of showing how brazen and confident he felt. He could leave a living witness and still not get caught. Furthermore, it could be a demonstration of his true control. He had the ability to focus so entirely on the one victim that he sometimes didn't even touch the other people in the room. But this is just me. This is just conjecture. I actually thought of a lot of parallels that could be drawn between the Midnight Assassin and the Golden State Killer. I wonder if somebody could use these similarities to try to create a profile of the Midnight Assassin, but it might just be a grueling <laughs> and thankless task. Another aspect of this crime spree that was confounding to locals was the fact that the Midnight Assassin was hiding his identity, which sounds strange, but remember, this was the tail end of the Wild West, and these people were used to hearing stories about outlaws that killed tons of people, but they would just brag about their crimes because they thought they were super cool. They didn't stay hidden. They wanted everyone to know just how many people they had killed. And those stories were so told throughout the area that we still know many of these outlaws a hundred years later. It's also worth noting that prior to this Midnight Assassin, there had actually been already many serial killers in the United States. But the fact that we don't know about them is that they were in the form of poisoners, usually women. And these stories usually didn't travel very far out of the states where they were committed. In many cases, they had money as a motive. And, you know, the way communication was back then, you just wouldn't hear about this kind of crime happening in a different state because you had no access to their newspaper. And that's just very strange to think about, but it's how it was. So taking that all into account, in reality, this Midnight Assassin was kind of the first true American serial killer that fits the stereotype that we think of. Everybody was on edge and terrified thinking 
about what kind of monster could be lurking among them. They wondered if it was just somebody that appeared ordinary on the surface that they interacted with all the time. At the end of November, a very surprising thing happened. The county grand jury, for some reason, decided to indict Walter Spencer for the murder of his girlfriend, Molly Smith, which was the one that happened at the very beginning. The prosecutor for the trial just so happened to be the younger brother of the mayor, so there likely was some corruption going on behind the scenes since the mayoral election was coming up. And maybe the mayor knew what he's doing because he ended up winning by about 50 votes. The next week after the election was Spencer's murder trial. And thankfully, after only one day of testimony, he was acquitted. There was no evidence whatsoever against him, and the prosecutor's assertion that he obviously had hit himself multiple times in the head with the axe was just stupid. Austin's marshal, Grooms Lee, was coming to the end of his term, and most residents had seen him as being completely useless in the position. And many saw him as just to put pencil pusher in the wrong job, say that they were eager to replace him with somebody that could catch the killer. A man named James Lucy was elected. He had been a captain with the Texas Rangers and was also known for being extremely intelligent. He took over his new position right before Christmas, and the whole city was starting to feel that optimism again, as though the right man had the job and everything was going to be a-okay. Austinites were desperate to go back to being the thriving, happy city that it had been. Their optimism would not last very long. On Christmas Eve, just a few weeks shy of the year anniversary of the first murder, the Midnight Assassin struck again. This night of crime would go down in Austin history for how shocking and brazen it was. It would be long remembered for the effect it had on the city. And also because there were white victims. Susan Hancock was a white woman from a prosperous family. She was married with children and they lived in a very nice house in a very nice neighborhood full of other well-heeled white families. She had been found in her yard, hacked in the head with an ax and stabbed in the ear. She was still somehow alive when police and Marshall Lee arrived at her house. Her husband, Moses, told the police how the couple slept in separate bedrooms. And that night, sometime after falling asleep, he heard a noise, and he discovered that her bed was empty, her window was open, and there were piles of her clothing thrown about the room. He went outside and found his wife lying bloodied in the yard, and he saw the shadowy figure of a man take off running out of the yard and down the road. The murder weapon was found in the yard. It was actually an axe that belonged to the Hancock family and was usually kept in the yard on the woodpile. Just as the Hancock residence was in full panic and swarming with police, someone that worked at the police department rode up on a horse and exclaimed that there had been a second attack. Another woman had been chopped up with an axe. The second victim was 17-year-old Eula Phillips, the wife of a prominent architect. She had been found in her own yard and she had been hit several times in the head with an ax. The crime had been discovered when her mother-in-law, Sophie, 
had found her son, Jimmy, unconscious in bed, covered in blood. Sophie's husband ran outside to look for Eula and had been the one to discover her badly mutilated body. Jimmy had a large gash on his head and was very bloody, but regained consciousness. The murder weapon, the axe, that belonged to that family, was found inside Eula and Jimmy's bedroom. It was also usually kept in the backyard on the woodpile. When Eula was found, she also had some of the wood from the woodpile placed on her body. This was a strange new addition to the killer's method. Word quickly spread throughout the city that the killer was now targeting prosperous white people, and the city lost its mind. Most residents did not want to stay home, and so, despite the fact that it was the middle of the night, people started to gather downtown. Everyone felt a little safer in a crowd than alone in their bedroom. Many store owners came downtown to open up their stores and turn on their lamps. Even the most logical adults were now afraid of the dark. And that is how they ring in Christmas 1885 in Austin. The next day, the front page of the Austin Statesman was headlined with blood, blood, blood. The demons have transferred their thirst for blood to white people. I'm serious, you guys. There had been one solitary bare footprint found in blood on the carpet of the Phillips home. The marshal ordered that Oliver Townsend, Doc Woods, and Alec Mack be brought to the station to have their bare feet printed. Predictably, none matched the killer's print, since they all had previously been released for no evidence. Now that white people were in danger, the city finally decided to hire 20 more police officers. They closed all places that sold alcohol at midnight, and the mayor decided to hire the renowned Pinkerton Detective Agency out of Chicago. The city was on high alert, and people were essentially boarding themselves up in their houses. The story had blown up in the media and was now terrifying citizens in other states. Susan Hancock had not succumbed to her wounds and for the moment was in her own home on the brink of death. Eula was basically given the celebrity death treatment. Everyone in the city mourned her as though she were their own daughter. She had been so young and so beautiful and her loss seemed like the biggest tragedy so far, you know, except for that other very young girl. Over the next day, Mrs. Hancock passed away, and for the first time, white suspects were arrested. There were two men with small specks of blood on their clothing that had been seen on a train out of Austin. It was quickly proven that they had gotten on the train at a different stop, and the blood was from an innocent fight between them. You know, as you do, walk around with blood on your clothes. The mayor had made a serious error and managed to hire the wrong Pinkerton Detective Agency. It was actually an agency started by a man with the same last name who was banking on it and advertised himself as being associated with the world-famous agency. The detectives that showed up had never actually been involved in a murder case. The mayor decided not to reveal his mistake and allowed the fraudulent detectives to actually stick around and investigate the crimes. He also paid them the city funds that were intended for actual detectives. 
A reward for $3,000 was now set for anyone that could provide information leading to the capture of a suspect that had killed the women. After the announcement of the larger reward, there was, of course, an avalanche of tips. They ended up arresting a homeless Mexican resident named Anastasio Martinez. They had no evidence to arrest him for the murders, but they decided that though he wasn't guilty of those, he still needed to go to the local lunatic asylum, so they had him committed. Not that it would really do much good since the asylum at that time was set up so that there was basically no security keeping anyone in. Dr. Denton, who ran the asylum, was more concerned with having the place be peaceful and rejuvenating than keeping the patients locked in. The city also rounded up all of the homeless people and literally drove them out of town. The town had been continuously flooded with even more media since the Christmas murders. People were coming from all around the world to write about this. A reporter from New York World actually wrote a pretty compelling description of the type of person who committed the crime. One that would be very similar to the modern stereotype of a cunning serial killer in the style of Ted Bundy. He also had yet another nickname for the killer, the quote, intangible nemesis. Coming up with serial killer nicknames is not for everyone. One thing that bothered people the most about the crimes was the lack of motive. The reporter explained that this man functioned completely apart from normal men. He killed simply for the love of it. The town must have really agreed with his article because many started recommending that police look into the more elite members of society to search for the killer. Some surmised that he might be a doctor with some medical knowledge, which you might recognize as being one of the theories about Jack the Ripper. Law enforcement received a tip that Eula had been involved in multiple affairs prior to being murdered. This caused them to look at her husband as the possible killer. Maybe he had learned of her affairs and gone crazy with jealousy. A woman that owned a house of ill repute backed up the story about Eula and claimed that she had met men there on several occasions and that on the night of her murder, she had shown up looking for a room, but they were all booked. She couldn't say whether Eula had been traveling with a man or not. It also came to light that Jimmy may not have actually been the loving husband he presented himself to be. It was said that he was actually quite abusive when drunk, which was always. Not long later, Jimmy Phillips was arrested for the murder of his wife. And shortly thereafter, Moses Hancock was arrested for murdering his wife, Susan, on the same night. It was hard for most residents to believe that Moses could have killed his wife. The similarities in the crimes made it seem very far-fetched that they would be committed by two separate people at the same time, so close together. Some thought it more likely that Jimmy Phillips had murdered his wife and tried to make it look like a midnight assassin murder, and that the real midnight assassin had killed Susan Hancock. There was a lot of speculation going on. After Moses was arrested, rumors started to circulate that Moses had actually been a secret drunk and abusive husband. These rumors seemed to come primarily from Mrs. Hancock's sister. However, these arrests did not put the minds of Austin women at ease. Most citizens didn't seem to believe that both arrested men were guilty. 
Therefore, they thought that at least one of the two women had been killed by the real midnight assassin. And if some fiend had crossed the line into attacking and butchering prosperous white women, then no one felt safe. At the end of January 1886, a black servant girl named Patty Scott was found murdered in her quarters in San Antonio, which was over a hundred miles away. She had also been chopped up with an axe. The murder looked very similar to those in Austin, and now it was another city's turn to panic. The small city of around 40,000 quickly sunk into a state of fear and paranoia. But surprisingly, that would end up being the only crime of this nature in that city. Just a few weeks later, back in Austin, the fake Pinkerton detectives announced that they had received a telegram informing them that Eula Phillips had been having an affair with a man named William Swain, who was currently the state comptroller and would soon be running for governor. This was, of course, a very scandalous accusation, not only because of the affair, but because that many thought that whomever, whomever she had been having an affair with must have also murdered her. This caused a political firestorm, and the mayor quickly sent the fake detectives back home, having spent even more of the city's money. They had made the atmosphere in the town worse and made zero progress on the case. It was never found out if there was any truth to the rumored affair, and no one ever found out who sent the telegram to the fake detectives. But once this huge rumor started, smaller scandals surfaced, and the man who had once been the majority favorite for governor ended up losing to his opponent in a landslide. Around this time, a curious thing happened. Dr. Denton, who ran the lunatic asylum, had a young man that worked for him as the assistant superintendent, a man named Dr. Given, who had actually married Dr. Denton's daughter. Say that five times fast. Not long after the double murder, Dr. Denton went to a judge and was able to have his own son-in-law involuntarily committed and sent to an asylum in a different part of Texas. There was no explanation given other than vague statements about him having a madness. He died in the other asylum very soon due to an unexplained illness. Coincidentally, or maybe not, young Dr. Given had gone to medical school in Edinburgh, and one of his classmates was Robert Louis Stevenson, a man who would go on to become a famous writer. One of his most popular stories was called Dr. Jackal and Mr. Hyde, about a doctor who's a normal man by day, but at night a madness overcomes him and he turns into a terrifying criminal named Mr. Hyde. Nothing further came of this, and the reason for Dr. Denton having Dr. Given sent away was never made clear. In May, Jimmy Phillips' trial began, and like many modern sensational trials, this one was packed with spectators. A woman that ran the hotel where people could have rendezvous te testified that she had seen Eula there with five different men three of which she named in court, and two others whom she didn't know. She did not mention the comptroller. There was no evidence presented that Jimmy even knew about these dalliances, or that he was angry with Eula. Several doctors testified that it would have been physically impossible to give himself the axe injury he had received because it was in the back of the head. Furthermore, they had a cast made of the footprint found in blood and it was obvious in comparison that Jimmy's foot was much too small. 
in a surprise to pretty much everyone involved in the case, he was actually found guilty of second-degree murder and sentenced to seven years in prison. Many were convinced that money had changed hands to either keep public figures' names out of the trial or to secure a conviction so that Austin would no longer be looked upon as Murder City. This was also another case prosecuted by the mayor's younger brother. In November of that year, nearly a year after the last murders in Austin, Jimmy Phillips' conviction was overturned and he was given a new trial. While waiting for his new trial, the prosecutor dismissed his case. The next sensational trial would be that of Moses Hancock in June 1887, and it was almost an identical circumstance. There was no evidence, and the jury ended up hung, and instead of trying him again, the prosecutor's office decided to drop all charges. A few weeks later was the first attack in over a year. The next attack was the most shocking yet, and the furthest from Austin, in a tiny town of Gainesville, 250 miles away, with only around 2,000 residents. On July 13, 1887, two young women were in the bedroom where they both had been sleeping. Jeannie Watkins and Mamie Bostwick were both just barely on the crest of adulthood when their lives were cruelly interrupted by an axe-wielding madman. The injuries were much the same as they had been in most of the previous cases. Mrs. Boswick had come into the room after hearing noises, and she saw a man jumping out the window, but could not give a description. Only Jeannie would die from the attack. Mamie survived with serious injuries. Now the whole state was panicking, and one newspaper gave the killer a new name, the Texas Jackal, in reference to Dr. Jackal and Mr. Hyde. Around the same time, the truth about the fake detectives finally came to light. Everyone was very mad at the mayor for paying the fake detectives even after he realized his mistake. He paid them about $3,400 out of the city's money, which in modern day would be around 90000 obviously quite a large sum, to pay for basically nothing other than political gossip. He decided not to run for re-election because he knew he wouldn't win. Soon there was a new mayor, Joseph Nall, who immediately ordered that two dozen large electric lights be installed downtown so the killer would have less shadows to hide in. Surprisingly, some of those lights still stand in Austin to this day. 1887 gave way to the new year and there had not been any major crimes in Austin since the double murder. The city seemed to be coming back to life and returning to the way things had been before the murders. With the newly elected officials in charge Everybody was feeling very optimistic again. It really was a new era for all of Texas. The double murder in Gainesville would be the last horrifying murder that was possibly attributed to the Midnight Assassin. And the city began to try and put it behind them. Then something strange happened. There began to be extremely similar murders that same year occurring in London, but this time the victims were sex workers. When the Jack the Ripper murders began, immediate connections were made between the two reigns of terror. Many wanted to believe it was the same person. Texas wanted to believe that the monster had left for good, and London wanted to believe that such a brutish killer could not possibly be English, because obviously they have no history of violence. There were many differences, though, 
The MO and weapons used were very different. However, of course, the speculation continued. One thing they did have in common is that both of the killers had killed two victims in one night in a very short time period. England was trying desperately to find a Texas connection, and they did find a few. Buffalo Bill Cody's Wild West show had been in London, and some cowboys had stayed in London. They also found some Lakota Native Americans from the show that had somehow accidentally been left in London? Scotland Yard questioned both groups, and they decided nobody knew anything. Thankfully, they were also able to help the Native Americans get back home. A Londoner came forward saying he had met a Malaysian man at a bar who had been working as a cook on ships and threatened to murder prostitutes after one had robbed him. Detectives wondered if this could be the man named Maurice that they had tailed in Austin. He was actually known to have sailed off to England in the middle of the killing spree. That seems kind of crazy, though. The speculation hit the media hard, and they all but convicted this non-existent, possibly, Maurice in the papers. Scotland Yard looked everywhere but could not find him anywhere, and they decided to believe that it was just a false connection. It's strange to realize the way that these two cities reacted to the similar killing sprees. While London has added Jack the Ripper into their myth and their history, and they've really embraced it, Austin completely swept it under the carpet. It was basically phased out of history because it was such a dark time and no one wanted to talk about it, which is partially why very few people have ever heard of this case. But that is the story of the Midnight Assassin, aka the Servant Girl Annihilator, aka the Intangible Nemesis. <laughs> I'm interested to hear your guys' feedback on this case. I thought it was so fascinating, and it's crazy that it's not talked about much. And you definitely should read Skip Hollinsworth's book because it's so effing good. Well, you guys. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this Patreon preview episode. If you'd like to become a patron, yada, yada, yada. All right, see you next time.